the challenge I give people is technology is about how do I get something done. People are about how do I make someone feel. And this is fundamentally the equation. You know, how do we get the best of both worlds? Because technology can help people get things done far more successfully, far more efficiently, far more consistently. You know, we can keep inserting all these different adjectives, but none of it changes the way people feel and humans do. So how do I help someone feel safe, feel assured, feel confident, feel inspired? These are the things that a great agent sales or property manager does and can do differently to anyone else in the market. So I think it's that question of, you know, what do I provide to help someone get things done? And then what's the service I give that changes how someone feels? And that's that's the secret sauce. It's, it's not overly complex. You're listening to Elevate, the official podcast of Elite Agent for real estate industry sales professionals, property managers and leaders. We're proud to present Courageous Conversations, a podcast series focusing on the tough decisions people have made to put themselves on a pathway to success. This episode is brought to you by Connect Now, who makes the business of moving easier for both you and your clients. For more information, visit connectnow.com.au. Please welcome your host, Leanne Pilkington. Hey everyone, Leanne Pilkington here with the latest edition of Courageous Conversations. And with me, the CEO from Colmeo is Scott Bateman. Hey Scott, how are you? Good morning, I'm all thank you. How are you? Yeah, awesome. I've been so looking forward to catching up. Now, you and I first met only very recently at the Elite Retreat. You were on stage and you just did such an incredible job. So congratulations to you. Not an easy thing to do to stand up and, um, and speak to a group of that size. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Thank you. Have you done much speaking before? I've done quite a bit, but generally not within the real estate industry. So um, in previous roles and in previous industries. So thankfully, a little bit of practice, but also just getting to know a lot of the people across the real estate world as well, which is exciting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so tell me, firstly, um, Colmeo. What does Colmeo do? Sure. So um, Colmeo is a property management software company. So uh, we replaced a previous product that we had in market called Agent Plus that we've been running for about 15 years. It was an old sort of server-based product from way back in the day. Wow. Uh, we kind of looked at it and sort of asked a whole bunch of questions about where we thought the future would go and what we thought the industry needed. And on the back of that, we kind of um, gave rise to the vision of Colmeo. So we launched a little over 12 months ago and we've brought on some of the biggest rent rolls in Australia over the last 12 months, which has been incredibly challenging, but also very exciting. Yeah, I can imagine when you're launching a new product into the property management space, that's a massive challenge because you can't afford to get it wrong, right? No, and things do go wrong. So <laughs> inevitably <laughs> you spend a lot of time trying to apologise and fix things and all those wonderful things that come with it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, fixing things that go wrong. We might get back to that a bit later, but um, you're, you've got a really interesting um, backstory. So you didn't finish high school, right? I didn't, no. No, I left Why? when I was 15. I got kicked out, so I was uh, I was misbehaving and quite naughty. I had this kind of one dream in life to be a fighter pilot, and when I found out that I couldn't because I was an asthmatic, I kind of went off the rails a little bit, to be honest, and wow. found a bunch of naughty friends and started doing a bunch of naughty things, and eventually... I can't imagine you being naughty. Yeah, no, I was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> so I very, very quickly found myself kicked out of home and kicked out of school, so it was a, it was a rude shock at 15. So kicked out of home at 15, what did you do? Uh, I slept on people's couches for as long as I could and and sort of just asked friends and wherever I could, I found a place to stay. And that went on for a couple of years before I eventually got into a rental property with a friend. couple of years. Okay. Yeah. So, so um, what did you do for work? Well, at the time I was an apprentice chef. So the only job I could get when I first got kicked out was pumping petrol. And um, this gentleman was opening a restaurant in the town that I was in. 
I used to fill his car for him and I liked his car, so I'd just chat with him. Yeah. And he said to me one day, you know, what do you want to do? And I said, I don't know. And he said, well, I'm opening this restaurant. Have you ever thought about being a chef? And I kind of went, well, not really, but I'll do it. So sure. And off I went and threw myself into 100 hours a week as an apprentice, which was a brutal way to kind of come into the world and earn a bit of money. My uh, my brother was um, initially a, an apprentice chef. He still um, chops a mean vegetable. How about you? <laughs> Have you still got good knife skills? Funnily enough, I've never lost them. So thankfully... It's amazing. Like I did it for about five years. I did my apprenticeship and a little bit longer, but all of the time, management skills, dealing with pressure, uh, you know, managing this very kind of complex world day in, day out. I learned it all then and it stayed with me since. So even when you have really tough days now, it's funny. I find myself reflecting on, hang on, it's not as bad as that. And if I can do that, I can do this. It's It's remarkable. Yeah, it's funny the things that you compare it to, isn't it? So, yeah, interesting. So um, five years as a chef, what happened then? Well, I hated the job, funnily enough. I never actually enjoyed it, but I couldn't do anything else. I thought I'd better stay with it. Uh, And then one day, one of the gentlemen that I was working for, I was in Blacktown in Sydney. Uh, His restaurant went broke. So I turned up to the restaurant. It had all been locked up. All my knives were inside. So I'm kind of looking at it going, well, now I can't work. Uh, So I I thought, you know what? I'm going to learn how to do sales. So I took a job doing outbound cold calling, selling hotel memberships. Why from chef to sales? I had it. There was a guy I was living with who got a job at Harvey Norman. So he was a chef. Uh, and he went and got a job at Black, Blacktown Harvey Norman, right next door to the restaurant we're in. And he had no experience and he walked in and earned twice the money for half the hours. And I thought, this is it. I found my dream job. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I walked in when the restaurant went broke and they said, well, you've got no sales experience. And I'm all, well, neither does he. They're like, yeah, but he's got that job. Yeah. I went, all right, well, I've got to learn how to sell. Uh, and at the time, you know, I picked up a paper and had to look through. And the only jobs that I could see were the ones that not many people really wanted. So I'd hop on a train. At five o'clock in the morning in Blacktown, I'd catch the train to Chatswood and a hundred times a day I'd call people trying to learn how to how to sell and get them to be interested in what I'm doing. Most wouldn't be. Uh, and then I'd sell a couple of things and I'd hop all the way back on the train and go back. And, and you were selling hotel memberships, so you were one of those annoying people. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, the funny thing is it was still a really good membership. Like I actually thought it was good value and, and a good program, but uh, you, you know, it's, it's, I think it was about a hundred calls a day where 98 would tell you what you could do with yourself and yeah. one or two would be interested and that would be just enough to kind of keep you going and keep you learning how to sell. You've mentioned learning how to sell a couple of times. So were you analytical in the process? It's like, okay, that call went really bad, uh, badly. Um, let me get a bit curious about how I could do it differently and do it differently the next time. Yeah, definitely. It was, it was a mix of kind of self-reflection. So exactly what you're saying, we kind of pull it apart and work out what worked and what didn't. I'd listen to the guy next to me who was the most successful and see what I could learn from him. Uh, and there was a guy that was kind of running it that would sort of float around and every now and again, he'd give you good feedback and he'd just come and say, here's what I think you try next time. You'd try it, it'd work or not. And eventually you'd get that little bit more successful with it until, you know, you're, you're not doing great. Like it's not a, a you know, kind of money-making industry really, but it was enough to get that sense of going home each day feeling successful rather than not, yeah. even though most of the calls weren't a positive outcome. Um, so it's a bit of kind of mindset training as part of the whole thing as well. Yeah, for sure. That's interesting because, I mean, in the real estate space, there's so much of that cold calling and it's really, it's tough. Brutal. Absolutely brutal. And how long were you there? Probably did that for about nine months. And then at the time I'd met a girl, she wanted to move to Melbourne uh, so I moved to Melbourne and then didn't have a job. And thankfully, the skills I'd learned in calling people, I literally got the yellow pages and I called every Harvey Norman or equivalent in Melbourne. 
and tried to talk my way into a job. And luckily there was a, a better electrical in Richmond in Melbourne that was surprised that a, at the time, I think I was 19, 20, that a 20-year-old would call them chasing work and they invited me in and gave me a job. So Amazing. it got me into retail sales and off I went. And, yeah, it's all all history from there. <laughs> um, now, I know that you had the incredible privilege of studying um, at Harvard. You did your MBA at Harvard. That's a really big deal. Um, I mean, I was proud of myself doing my MBA in, in Sydney. Well, truth be told, I did, I did my MBA at RMIT in Melbourne, and then I did what's called the Advanced Management Program at Harvard, right. which is if you've already got an MBA, typically that's kind of the thing that you'll look to do next. So what was the motivation to do the MBA in the first place? Uh, honestly, <laughs> I, um, I had been on a holiday with my wife in Greece, and we were staying at this very fancy hotel because at the time I wanted to propose, and I'd booked this really elaborate spot. And we were sitting there and I was kind of had this moment of I want to be rich and I want to earn lots of money and I want to afford things like this. And I was pretty, pretty stupid, but pretty driven. And I decided, you know what, when I get back, no matter how stupid I feel, I'm going to enroll and I'm going to have a crack and I'm going to go and get this education. Um, and it was just enough kind of motivation to go back and do all of that, despite how uncomfortable it was. Uh, and then through my MBA, that was when you kind of learn more about yourself and learn that the money doesn't matter and you want to do purposeful work. And I had this kind of complete... 180. That's where I mean that's really interesting because your whole your whole motivation for doing the MBA was to get it educated so you could get rich. Spot on. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. Um and then you do it and it changes everything. So talk me through what happened. I think it was to be honest, it was insecurity. I I'd I'd grown up in a you know poor family, I'd family that businesses went broke. I was then, you know, very poor for a long time. And it was this insecurity where I wanted to prove the world wrong. I'm like, you know what? My measure of success is money. Yeah. And as long as I earn more money than the people around me, I'm not a failure. Um, the problem was, well, I guess the benefit was, as I got through the study, you get more and more comfortable that there's this wonderful world of opportunity in front of you as you complete it. You get all these options available to you career-wise that weren't in the past. And increasingly, you come to realize that the money is kind of irrelevant. Like, do work that's meaningful. Do work that's purposeful really get to know who you are and what matters. And it was this fascinating kind of change within myself where suddenly, you know, I didn't care about it and I ended up making a lot more money because I didn't care about it because you stop chasing short-term kind of pay increases or whatever. Um, but it was it was remarkable. Like it was the most important thing that came out of it was really getting to know myself a bit more, confronting some of my own insecurities and off I went. Yeah, that, it's such an interesting conversation. I remember when I first started at Lang & Simmons, um, I took a 30% pay cut wow. to come to Lang & Simmons. And, um, you know, I was the one earning the money, you know, um, uh, back in those days. And um, I don't know, it just, money doesn't make you happy. It doesn't. Yes, it, makes you, it lets you buy nice things, but it ultimately is not what makes you happy. And so trying to find that purpose, um, and I've had a few conversations with people just in the last week, that have been saying to me, oh, Lee, I just don't feel fulfilled. It's like, well, that's what interesting. What are the things that make you happy? So, so how did you go about working out what that purpose needed to be for you? I think it's it's actually through learning more about yourself. And I think it's learning more about um, you know, when you're really happy what's going on and what's behind it. And what I was finding is that even when I had no money and I was homeless and everything else. It, I wasn't entirely miserable. Like, sure, there were there were horrible moments within that. But um, what I was finding is that when I was at my happiest, it was when I was doing things that had a positive impact on others. Yeah. It was when I was doing things that stretched me and challenged me. 
And when I achieved difficult things, they were kind of the most rewarding moments for me. Um, and I guess what it did as a consequence is it gave me that clarity to say, well, let's do work when you can have an impact on others and you can make a difference. Uh, let's find opportunities to give back wherever you can. And let's keep trying difficult things no matter how uncomfortable it is, because even though it feels awkward at the time, inevitably those peaks in the story of your life are when you've done the most difficult things. Uh, and I think for me, that was that was really important. Yeah, I do um, an induction session for everybody that joins Lang and Simmons. And I ask people, what are the things that they're most proud of? It's not about your kids. It's not about your partner, because women tend to say, oh, my children. Right. Um, but what is it that you're most proud of? And I'm shocked at how many people can't think of anything that they're really proud of. What's behind that, do you think? Is it just uh, they're not reflecting on it or they're distracted by other things that they think should have been the answer to that question? I think sometimes they think things need to be really big for them right. to be proud. But I also think that there's a lot of people out there who don't necessarily push themselves outside of their comfort zone. And certainly when I reflect on the things that I'm most proud of personally, they've been hard. Yeah. And there have been things that have been really hard for me to do either because it was my MBA and it took a long time or it was buying the buying the business at Lang and Simmons and that was a massive risk. So they're things that are really hard and not everybody pushes themselves to do the hard stuff, I think. Yeah, that's interesting. That's really interesting. Yeah. You've also um, talked to me about um, being prepared to be a little bit vulnerable and put your hand out and say, hey, I need some help. How do you find people react to that when you do that? I am constantly surprised at just how much people actually do want to help others and invite the opportunity to help others. Um, I remember, you know, when I first started my MBA, I was absolutely terrified because I had a year 10 education. I've never done anything since. And I'm with all these really smart people and felt very out of my depth. And they were all much smarter than you, right? Oh, multiple degrees, all very smart, all very fancy. And I got put into this learning group and I remember sitting there with them on the first day saying, guys, I'm really sorry. I'm going to work my backside off to contribute, but I've got to level with you. I've never done anything like this. I never finished high school. I don't even know where to start. And it was amazing. Like every one of them said, we'll get you through it. Don't worry about it. Like we'll help you. Don't worry about it. And I can still remember that. And it's been every time since you put yourself out there and you reach out to someone and say, hey, I'm going to give it my best, um, you know, but here's the things that I need and here's I'm not quite sure. Inevitably, there's someone that says, actually, I'd enjoy helping you. Like I'm, I'd, I'd want to give you a hand. And then I've found as I've kind of matured and, and done other things, that sat with me and any time I've got an opportunity to help someone, now I want to do it because I know how, how impactful that was for me. So I think there's this wonderful kind of virtuous circle that kicks off where as someone gets helped, they want to give help, but all too often we assume that we're, we're a burden to someone or, you know, we're asking too much. It's like, no, people actually do enjoy helping you, but you've got to be willing to ask and then put in the work. It's as simple as that. Yeah, and most of us are really happy to help others. I mean, certainly you, get, you, you do get um, busy. Yeah. Um, and have a challenge helping yourself sometimes, <laughs> um, but um, but yeah, I've certainly found the same. I um, I'm I have had a lot of help getting to where I am in my career, and like you, I'm now you know very happy to help other people when they um, when they put their hand up and ask for it. And it's actually you know it makes you feel good that um, you, somebody thinks that you're you know you can help them. So yeah, I like it. Couldn't agree more. What tips would you give to people about 
how how they find their purpose and how they then take that step outside of their comfort zone because that's kind of the courageous conversation you have to have with yourself, right? I think it is. I think the the, the question becomes: What's the worst thing that could happen? Yeah. And what's the best thing that could happen? So if I make this decision, you know, if I don't make the decision, what's you know what's going to happen? And the answer is nothing will change. So. That part you guaranteed. Like it's not going to improve. May not get worse, but it's not going to improve. So if you are absolutely wrapped with the way things are, keep it the way the way it is. The problem becomes then: well, if you've got an opportunity, but it's going to be awkward or uncomfortable or difficult, what is the best thing that could happen if I do this? And I think, generally speaking, that becomes quite exciting and motivating and so on. Uh, and when you sort of start to ask, well, what's really going to go wrong if I have a go? I might embarrass myself a little bit. I might look foolish for a little bit. I might go from being the smartest guy in the room to the dumbest guy in the room or person in the room, but that's temporary. And, and it's not, you know, it's not real pain. Like you're not going to get injured. There's none of those things. Yeah. Um, but I think the more you do it, you build a bit of muscle around it and you build a bit of confidence in trying it again each time. And I think um, I think we need to reframe the concept of failure. Agreed. Because I know in my team when something goes wrong and things go wrong, I won't say every day, but they go wrong. You know, things go don't go the way that I want them quite frequently. And we've just got this dialogue in our team now. It's like, hmm, let's get curious about that. I love it. Why did that, why did that happen? How should we have done that? And I've also found that if, particularly me being the CEO, if I put my hand up and go, Scott, you know what? I am so sorry um, about that. I handled, I should have handled that better. And I didn't. And I'm sorry. And people just go, Ooh, I, didn't, I didn't see that coming. Yeah. Um, and um, and any anger and upset kind of dissipates really quickly because you've just so unexpectedly taken responsibility. So true. Well, I think you're setting that tone, aren't you? Like you're making yeah. it safe for people to own mistakes and be comfortable that things do go wrong and it's not it's not permanent, it's not the end of things. No. It's just it's a step that you've got to change direction or do something a bit differently. Absolutely. Yeah. And that that whole um concept of psycholog- psychological safety, um, that's a really important part of high performing teams, right? Couldn't agree more. Well it's also uh, you know you're making it safe for people to try new things, push the envelope, take a bit of risk. Uh, and if you're not, the question becomes what happens? Because you're competing with people who, who will. And if you're competing with people who are prepared to do those things because they have that safety and, and so on, I think it's very difficult to, if you are wedded to, you know, in inverted commas, no mistake environment where let's make sure nothing goes wrong. Yeah. Like you, you're going to lose. You so are going to lose. In essence, strategically, it's flawed. Yeah, for sure. And if you're a leader who always has to be right um, and always has to have the good ideas, it's just not, it's not a good environment to foster um, great ideas and progress and innovation and great people. So true. So, so true. Yeah. So talk to me about property management. Why, um, what do you see as the future of, of property management? We're hearing about, you know, the great resignation and property managers leaving the industry. Some people say that's what's happening. Other people I've spoken to have said, ah, oh, no, it's just lots of people are leaving because they couldn't leave during COVID. So that it's, we've kind of got a, the knock-on effect, <laughs> if that makes sense. So I don't yeah, know, what's your view? I think it's it's a rapidly changing environment that is awfully complex to make sense of and understand. Yeah. Um, and there's there's like this there's a series of colliding forces and trends that are going on that we're seeing. Um, the first is unquestionably people are getting more demanding. 
So the owners that a property manager is responsible for, the tenants they're responsible for, and potentially the business owners they work for, every one of these people is expecting more, which means if I was a 10 out of 10 last week, I could do the same things and be a 9 out of 10 this week and an 8 out of 10 the next and so on. So this pattern that I've built and skills that I've built have to keep changing to evolve and meet the needs of all these different people. I think we've got um, a whole bunch of confusion because of technology, to be honest, which is a um, an odd thing to hear a technology company say, but it's a reality. Sure, yeah. You know, technology companies uh, succeed when they can carve off a little bit of the market and build a thing, but it means you've now got small businesses with 10 or 15 products and how do you make sense of it? Yeah. Um, I think the legislative change is an issue. That's creating confusion. And I follow some of the property manager forums where it's frightening just how many different opinions you'll see in response to a question about what does this mean and what does it do. And so um, so determined that they're right as well. Yeah. Well, um, and look, they mean well. They want to help. But this is a problem. If you're wrong, yeah. we've just perpetuated an inaccuracy and so on. So I think it's a, it's a really tough environment to be in. Uh, if you look at what a property manager gets paid, it's not a lot of money for the role. But at the same time, if you look at what a business owner makes, there's not a lot else to pay. So this is a problem we've got to find a way to, to solve. Yeah. Um, I'm equally excited because I think there's a whole bunch of incredible stuff on the not-too-distant horizon that's going to make this a more profitable industry, a more enjoyable industry, and so on. But we've got to get people through it because it is this period of change. I'd argue we are in a similar spot to what my old world in, in finance and banking was like maybe eight to 10 years ago. I think they went through a similar kind of change as we went from things like tellers to internet banking and everything else. We're following a similar path. So we've seen some of this before, but I think we're having to confront it now, which is, it's tough. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know whether it was the conference that you spoke at, um, could have even been you actually, um, but somebody said at the time, oh, you know, who would, who would, um, stand up if you've had a an issue with your bank in the last 12 months. It's like, yeah, um, stay standing if you did something about it and moved. Yeah, and the answer is no. No. But would you move if your bank no longer provided um, internet banking, yeah. online banking, yeah. and everybody would move? And that was such a powerful moment for me because I speak to property managers every day and they'll say, oh, no, they, you know, the owners don't want that tech, the, the tenants don't, that nobody wants it. It's like, oh, what was a privilege or something innovative last year is just an absolute expectation today and property managers have got to be really mindful of that when they're considering the tech that they're putting into their businesses. Well, I think that the problem is at the moment I think there's a perception that it's technology or human service. People say, oh, no, they don't want the technology, they want human service. So, well, they actually want both. Yes. And, and I love the internet banking app, you know, example, because I think it's a great one where when I, when I was with um, was West, uh, Westpac Group, we did a lot of research on why people would leave and why they wouldn't. And the one thing we found that made them incredibly sticky is does your salary come into a Westpac account? You could have 10 products with 10 banks, but if your salary was in your account, it was our app you used for your internet banking. And if it was our app you used, you wouldn't leave. So even though the people gave great service or you could get bad service from time to time, I didn't want to have to unlearn the app I'd come to know and learn a new one in switching to CBA or whatever it may be. We've got a similar kind of challenge. The human service is incredibly important. People do build relationships with people. But what we're seeing is increasingly people are expecting technology and property management to be at least as good as what we get when we call an Uber or 
you know, order delivery or do our banking, whatever it may be. So it's it's not a it's not or it's and. How do we make sure people are getting the boat at the best of and? Yeah, that's exactly right. I went to the Inman um, conference in the US back in um, 2018 and 2019, and particularly in 18, every there was so much tech there, and they were talking about technology overtaking agents right. and making us um, redundant. Now, nobody is talking about that <laughs> at all. It's very clear that yep. technology is not going to replace agents, but what no. will happen is agents that um, take up technology and embrace technology will replace agents that don't. Well, I think that the challenge I give people is technology is about how do I get something done? People are about how do I make someone feel? And this is fundamentally the equation. You know, How do we get the best of both worlds? Because Technology can help people get things done far more successfully, far more efficiently, far more consistently. You know, we can keep inserting all these different adjectives, but none of it changes the way people feel and humans do. So how do I help someone feel safe, feel assured, feel confident, feel inspired? These are the things that a great agent sales or property manager does and can do differently to anyone else in the market. So I think it's that question of, you know, what do I provide that helps someone get things done? And then what's the service I give that changes how someone feels? And that's that's the secret sauce. It's it's not overly complex. That's a really powerful way to think about it, getting things done and, and um, how, pe- how you're making people feel. That's awesome. That's probably an awesome place to finish. Fabulous. Always lovely to catch up with you. Thank you so much. If people want to find out more about what Colmeo do, how do they find you? Uh, they can find us on colmeo.com, so K-O-L-M-E-O.com, and you can hit the Contact Us page. Uh, alternatively, you can look me up on LinkedIn or whatever social platform you like and find me there. We're always happy to have a chat. It's actually harder to hide from people yes. than find <laughs> people these days, isn't it? <laughs> I think you're right. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much, Scott. Thanks so much for having me. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Courageous Conversations with thanks to connectnow.com.au. Don't forget to get access to all of Elite Agency's premium resources, including a detailed episode guide for this podcast. Visit joineliteagent.com.